We're going to be continuing in our series, uh, Did God Really Say That? We're exploring different phrases and expressions that people say, these common things, and that people usually think comes from Scripture, from the Bible, from God. And we're asking the question, did God really say that? We've already done a couple. Looked at, does God really never give us more than we can handle when it comes to trials in our lives? We looked at, God helps those who help themselves. Last time we were in the series, we said God wants us, we looked at the phrase, we didn't say it. Well, I mean, we did, but you know what I'm saying. God wants us to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. I gotta be careful, like, I don't want to say God said that, because he didn't, and we made that one pretty clear. And today we get to look at another phrase, and as usual, we got a little video to illustrate it. I think you guys are going to like this one. We got a big star in our hands here. That song will get lodged in your head the rest of the day. I couldn't stop singing it all week. And I would sing it, then Chris would start singing it, and oh man. So that's the phrase. That's what we're looking at today. We are all God's children. We've heard it. We've said it. Maybe you've heard it phrased a little differently that, um, you know, someone said, doesn't matter what you believe, all paths lead to God, the same God. You know, hear phrases like that. It makes us feel good. It's a, it's a nice feeling. It makes us feel really inclusive. We're not exclusive at all. Everyone's happy. It certainly made Bill jolly in that video. But the question at hand is, did God really say that? And it's a question worth asking because, honestly, if everyone from every faith or lack of faith in the entirety of the earth was considered one of the children of God in that family, the implications are pretty big. The implications of the gospel and and everything that we believe and see in Scripture. So I want to answer the question, did God really say we are all God's children? And when I say we, I'm using it in the sense that people use the phrase, not we as in the church, but we as in all of humanity. So when I say we, I'm going to be saying we a lot because it's a lot easier than saying all of mankind. It's less syllables. So that's what I'm going to mean when I say that. And so as we tackle this, we're going to look at 
really the relationship that we see starting with God and man from the beginning in Genesis and move towards the cross. Not all of it, because that would be the entirety of the Old Testament, and that might be a little long. So we'll see. Creation, relationship begins. Corruption, the relationship broken. And Christ, the relationship bonded. So the first text we're going to be in, if you want to turn there with me, is Genesis 1. And I'm going to start, it's not on the screen, but I'm going to start reading at verse 1 here. Well, more like summarizing it. Because we have to go back to the beginning. And in Genesis 1, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's an important place to start. Because in the beginning, God was. It's not the other way around. God wasn't created. God has always been. And He creates On the first day, we see him separate the light from the darkness, creating day and night. On the second day, God creates the heaven, the expanse that separates the waters below from the waters above. The third day in creation, God gathers the water and raises up dry land, calls it earth, calls the water seas, brings up some vegetation, some plants. The fourth day, God creates the seasons and the sun and the moon. The fifth day, God creates the the creatures of the sea, the birds of the air, the creatures of the earth. And with all of these things, God looks at them and he says, they're good. But then the sixth day comes and God creates something most unique. God creates man. And that brings us to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds. Of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree, every seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, It was very good. There was evening, morning, the sixth day. So the first thing we see in this passage, verse 26 and following, is that mankind is uniquely made. Man's made in God's image, in God's likeness. No other creature on the earth can say that. As humans, we're image bearers of God. The Imago Dei. What does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we're little gods, but it means we're created in something similar to that of God. We have some of his attributes, characteristics that point us back to our creator. We have a sense of morality. We are physical and spiritual beings. We have intellectual capabilities. We have relational connections to each other. These are all attributes that are like that of our Creator. 
Man is made in his image, in his likeness. And being made in that image and likeness shows that we have dignity, we have value, we have worth, we have significance to God. We have a unique connection to our Creator. And all that, all that we see created in the first five days, he says, good. And then he creates man, and then he looks at it, and he says, it's very good. God loves his creation, and he loves those made in his image and likeness. We're precious. We're treasured by our Creator. That's a good thing. And the unique quality of being made in that image and likeness set Adam and Eve apart. They had a unique role. They had dominion over everything in the garden. They ate of the fruit of the trees. Adam named animals. And they had an open, unblemished relationship with their creator. Dwelling in paradise, in fellowship with God. They were living in such a way that we now one day hope to be. They had it. It was there. They were living it. There was a connection between Adam and Eve and God unlike anything that we really know this side of glory. But everything changes when sin enters the picture. You know the story. There's one tree in the garden that God says, don't eat. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And then you have the serpent who comes in and he's like, did God really say you'll die if you eat of it? And he tricks Adam and Eve into eating of this fruit and we see this first sinful act, this act of disobedience to God. And that set forth this chain reaction of sin that we get to deal with day in and day out in our lives today. Before that moment, it says that Adam and Eve were, were living guilt-free. They weren't ashamed. They weren't fearful of God in the sense where they were actually afraid. They had no shame. They had a, a good connection. But now, they eat the fruit, and the first thing they do, they realize they're naked. And they're like, oh no! And they run, and they go, they hide. They're afraid of God. He asked them, where are you? They said, we're hiding. We're naked. He's like, who told you that? The perfect relationship that they had was not there. Exiled, and they become exiled from the garden. They are removed from paradise. So essentially that perfect inheritance they were living in in the beginning stripped away because of sin. They don't like to live in the perfect garden. They don't have the connection with their creator. All those pieces that could make a child feel like they're a part of that family are distorted and taken away. But the important thing and why I'm here and teaching from here is what wasn't stripped away was the fact that they are still in the image and likeness of God. Sin didn't take that away. Sin distorted it. It's been manipulated. But every person from Adam and Eve on is still created, still has value, still has worth. Every child conceived and born bears that image. So I say that because as we're studying, you know, this phrase that we're all God's children, 
We are certainly all image bearers. Everyone in this room, everyone walking the face of the earth, everyone who has ever lived is an image bearer of God made in God's image and likeness. So, does that mean we're all God's children? I don't think so. Why not? You said we're all in his image. He created us all. Doesn't that make us his children? There's a difference. There's a difference between a creature-creator relationship and a father-child relationship where there's that strong bond, that relationship, similar to that of what we saw in the very beginning. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, There is a creator-creature relationship between the Lord and all of humanity. This is far different, however, from the father-son relationship in which we have a personal, loving communion with our God and enjoy access to his presence, end quote. That accessible, relational, loving communion that was there in the beginning before sin is broken. It's gone. And what does that look like exactly? Before we get to the mending of it, let's look at the results of it further. Because to feel just how loved we are in the gospel, we need to look at where we, we came from. Corruption. The relationship broken. There's a passage in, this passage is up on the screen, Isaiah 53. We've seen it a lot. We definitely see it around Easter a lot and Good Friday. Called the Suffering Servant Passage. And we're giving really good insight into what exactly Christ would come to do on the cross. Long before he even walked the earth, we have this prophecy from Isaiah. And not only do we gain insight about Christ, but we gain insight about ourselves. So Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who's turned? Everyone. Where do we we turn? Our own way, our own direction. As a result of sin. We've ceased to rely on the, the words and the commands of God. Under sin and in the flesh, we don't see God's ways as loving ways. We don't see them as good. We don't see them as kind. We see them as, as burdensome, silly. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to trust him. We don't want that relationship. We want to go our own way, create our own gods, idols. We see this in all the various religions that we see out there. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, perhaps a lack of religion, atheism. You have the Mormons who have altered and distorted the very nature of God in the gospel, hoping to one day themselves be gods instead of relishing the fact they get to dwell with their God. You have the spiritual pluralists who don't know exactly really what they believe. They just take bits and pieces of everything, put them together, and everything's just like super spiritual and super deep. Just believe in something sincerely enough And as long as you do that, you're good to go. All religions, all beliefs, they're all valid because they all lead to the same place in the end. We're all God's children. 
Believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And there isn't really any true way. That's the direction we run with sin. For a more maybe ridiculous illustration, but actually true, I don't know who, who here has seen the movie The Big Lebowski. In that movie, there's a character called The Dude. This is The Dude. He's a carefree, lackadaisical kind of person. Probably pretty lazy. Very feel-good. He's the dude. There is an actual religion called dudism. I kid you not. It's like partially ridiculous and partially people have bought into it and believe and follow it. And it's based on this character. The intent of dudism is to, and I quote, provide a religion for people who like some aspects of religion but didn't really like any of the stuff that was available. Isn't it nice? You just like, go to the shopping, I want this and this. Ooh, broccoli, no. Like, you can't do that. Dudism actually offers ordination. And there's not like 25 dudist priests, as they do call them. There's over 250,000 people ordained in dudism. Why? Because on their website they say, we have that many because... It's a fun process, and people enjoy going through it. I don't know what that means. But they have the legal right to marry people and do those different ordinances that are really for the church. Dudism. There's another uh, story that Craig Groeschel from Life Church. he talks about how he was commuting to seminary with two people, a man and a woman. And he had many conversations with these people, and the woman believed sincerely in reincarnation. And she, she said, because she loved France, and because she loves trees, in her previous life, she was a tree in France. So the other guy who's commuting with them says, really, so you, based on what you love, that's what you once were? She's like, I believe so. And he says, then in my previous life, I must have been a woman. (laughs) We have turned everyone to our own way. This is the world in which we live. This is a world without Christ, without the gospel. We go our own way. Man has rejected God as creator, as sustainer, as provider, as shepherd, as leader, as master. Humanity has turned, as a result of sin, to its own way. Running whatever direction feels good, feels happy, feels pleasant. But we've denied God in that. In a blog post from this past Tuesday, John Piper wrote, Glad submission to God's authority and to God's superior value and beauty is something we are not able to do. This is not because we are kept from doing what we prefer to do. It's because we prefer our own authority and treasure our own value above God's. We cannot prefer God as supremely valuable while preferring ourselves supremely. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. Go over to the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if Isaiah didn't make it clear enough that we've gone our own way, I think Paul does a pretty good job here. He says we were dead in our sins, living according to passions of the flesh. By nature, that is by birth, children of wrath. So yeah, we're all children after all, I guess. But apart from Christ, we're not children of God, but children of wrath. This doesn't mean we're wrathful people. It doesn't mean we're angry necessarily. But it means as the result of sin, that broken relationship, our standing as man before God without Christ is recipients of his wrath. I know that's not particularly good news. Most people didn't come here this morning to hear like, Oh, without Christ, we're children of wrath. Awesome. But that's what the scriptures say. That's what Paul made clear here. Those who choose to run and go their own way, do their own thing, create their own gods, become their own gods, are children of wrath. Christ comes and he calls us to himself because we're running quickly towards that judgment. I love that we sing the song, All I Have is Christ, which we're not singing today, but verse 1 says, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life, and sin does all the time, had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Without Christ, we're running our own way. We're rebelling against God. We're running from God. We want to serve our own purposes. We want to seek our joy elsewhere. And we sprint towards wrath. The sin, it's promising joy, it's promising life, fulfillment. We come up empty. This is what I was doing before Christ. What I still do sometimes. Praise God for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. This is what everyone is doing without Jesus Christ. Now I don't say that to like, you know, pat Christians on the back because like, good job, you got the gospel. I say that because that's why we live on mission. That's why we need to share the love of Jesus because people are lost. We are not all God's children in a post-fall world. It sounds good. It sounds nice. It feels good. It's a nice thought to have all the people around the world holding hands and singing songs about being God's children. Sadly, it's not the case. And to spread that 
like it's true, though it may sound good, it's actually anti-gospel. We're communicating that there's nothing sinful in us. There's nothing wrong that's keeping us from God. We're communicating that God is absolutely okay with people rebelling against him, denying who he is, spitting in his face, saying, I don't like you. I'm going to go worship this way. I'm not going to believe in any God whatsoever. God is dead. We're, we're communicating that that's okay. Christ went to the cross and died for no particular reason. Because it doesn't matter, we're all his children, no matter if you believe in that or not. And that doesn't make sense with what this says. It doesn't make sense why a God would just look down and go, yeah, that's fine. Rebel against me. But as the church, we're to share the truth of the gospel. Because though... Mankind may be lost and running. There is hope. There is salvation. I actually saw this picture this week, and I thought it summed it up pretty good. We will never be so holy as to meet God's standard. That's our sin. And we are never too wicked as to be beyond his rescue. That's the good news. Let that encourage you this morning. We needed a little encouragement. I mean, going through children of wrath, we're dead in our sins. We need some good news. That's good news. And now let's look at what it looks like to be a child of God. Because even, even though everyone isn't, that doesn't mean the gospel can't penetrate hearts and transform lives. So how does one become a child of God if we're not, therefore, all children of God? So glad you asked. Because here's the good news. Here's what I've been waiting to get to. The relationship bonded. If we're not children of God through birth, if by nature we're children of wrath, and if being in God's image doesn't innately make his, us his children, what does? It's pretty simple. Christ makes us God's children. God's child brings us in and makes us his children. The Son of God gave his life so that we could be sons and daughters. It's an important doctrine, one of my, my favorite doctrines. I, I don't know, there's something about this relationship between the Father and his people, this doctrine of adoption. It's core to our identity as Christ followers. It's something Paul teaches greatly in John, and we see it throughout the New Testament. This doctrine of adoption, as Wade Grudem defines it, is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. That's what adoption is. That's what I'm going to be talking about. An act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. We're adopted as children of God because we don't start that way. Otherwise, we wouldn't be adopted, right? We would just be born into the family. But the Bible, the New Testament, speaks clearly of adoption. It's nothing that we do that makes us worthy of being children, but what God does. It's because Christ gave himself that we're able to be received as children of God. And I want to look at John 1, 1. Just going to look at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look at 9 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Christ was life. We were dead. Christ brings life. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want to hone in here on verses 12 and 13, because they answer the question, who's actually a child of God? If not everyone, who? All who did receive him, all who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's who he gave the right to become children of God. And we, we see three, cru- three crucial things that I've highlighted. The first thing, those who receive Christ. Not rejecting Christ. It said that Christ came and they did not receive him, but to all who do receive him. In Isaiah, everyone's running their own way. Ephesians, we're children of wrath, we're dead, we're rebelling against God. You're rejecting his ways. And then Christ comes. People reject him. But to those who receive him can be children of God. What does that look like? We can't just invite Jesus over for dinner, right? I mean, it doesn't really work that way. Zacchaeus was able to do it, but we're not. So how do we receive Christ? When Christ calls us to himself, it's responding. Yes. It's submission to the call of the God of the universe. We stop our running and we receive the gift of grace that Jesus is extending to us. We humble ourselves. We admit our, bro- our brokenness, our sin. We admit that we're not God. And we fall at the feet of Christ. To quote John Piper again, he says, Receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is. If he comes to you as Savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. When he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. When he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. If he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. All these different attributes John Piper lists, they take humility. They take really denying ourselves and submitting to Christ. Because we want to save ourselves, but we can't. We really want to lead our own lives, but we end up falling on our face. We want to provide for all our needs, and we come up short. We try to counsel ourselves, and we end up in a worse spot than when we started. We try to protect ourselves by our own means, and we're left wounded. We want to have absolute authority, and we realize we definitely don't. And we want to be the kings of our own little world, and we end up conquered. 
But with Christ, when we submit ourselves to him, receive him for who he is, we find that we are, as Paul says, more than conquerors through Christ. We are children of God. We need not worry about the problems of this life too much because we look forward to the eternal inheritance waiting for us. Have you responded to that? Have you received Christ or are you rejecting him? Are you running from him? Are you running your own way? The sheep that wanders off without a shepherd gets devoured by the wolves. Have you received Christ? The second thing we see is those who believe in his name. Receiving and believing, they go hand in hand together. John intentionally lists them both here. To receive Christ means that we also truly believe who he is, who he said he was. As we've looked at John over the past almost a year, really, we see people listening to Jesus, embracing him when he's giving them food, when he's doing miracles. Christ is awesome! And then he says, I am. And they're like, whoa, too much. He says, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to have life. And they're like, that's crazy. And they, they're out. Christ says he's God. And they don't want that. We've heard people say it. Maybe some of the people in this room have said it. I think Jesus is a good moral teacher, but I don't believe he's God. Jesus backed up everything he said through his life, death, and resurrection. He proved his deity time and time again. Why accept part and not the whole? Why accept one side and reject the other? That's what it means. We, if we receive him, we need to believe all of him. He doesn't call, Jesus doesn't call us to take little bits and pieces, what we want. He wants all of us, and he wants us to treasure and receive all of him, believing in his name. That's the purpose John even wrote the gospel according to John. Chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the who? The Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything that is, Jesus did on this earth was to demonstrate the glory of God, to, de- to demonstrate that he was indeed the Son of God, fully God, fully man, so that we would believe So that we would go from being dead in our trespasses and sins to having life. The good part about, we had Ephesians 2 up on the screen earlier, and I kind of ended it at Children of Wrath, which was not the high note of that passage. It goes on. I don't have it on the screen, but Ephesians 2, now here's 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. By believing in Christ, we're no longer enemies with God, no longer children of wrath, but have the right to be called children of God. 
So why isn't everyone? Because they haven't repented. They haven't received Christ. They haven't believed. Faith and belief in Christ's deity is atoning work on the cross and the resurrection from the grave leads to life, leads to adoption into the family of God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't get to say we don't like what's available and then just make our own thing. Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. People seem to miss that passage when they say Jesus said anyone and everyone just goes to heaven. They missed that. They said, no, you need to believe in Christ and what he did. There's no path to the family of God except through that of Jesus Christ. And God really said that. And the third thing we see in this passage, it says those who were born not of blood nor of will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. That means those who receive him, those who believe in his name, and those who are born of spirit, because that's what John's saying here. It means just being born naturally, just being physically born does not make you a child of God. It still makes you an image bearer. It still gives you dignity and value of worth to God. I can't emphasize that enough. But it doesn't make you a child of God. It's like Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, that doesn't make any sense. But I have to go back into my mother's womb? He says, no, you must be born of the spirit, of water and the blood. When we receive Christ, when we believe in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit who works in us, changing us from children of wrath with hearts of stone to children of God with soft hearts opening, open to God's teaching. The last passage I'm going to be in today is Romans 8. We're going to look at 12 to 17 here. So then, brothers, Paul writes, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they became ashamed. They hid in fear. But Paul tells us in this passage, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions as sons. The Spirit confirms within us our place as sons and daughters. We don't need to to live as slaves to sin, to live in fear, to, to hide ourselves from God. He's our Father. He loves us. We can rejoice in that adoption. 
In the flesh, we rebel, we run. But in the spirit, it says, we cry, Abba, Father. It's not something because we cry just because we've been born of flesh. It's what we cry as a result of our rebirth. Paul says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what are the implications of that? Paul continues. He says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Being children of God means that we are heirs to the inheritance with Christ. We receive the gift of living in paradise, in dwelling with God forever and ever. That's the inheritance for the children of God. That's the hope we look forward to. Do you see what happened? Genesis 1.1, we, we were in, we weren't. Adam and Eve was in, were in paradise. They were living and dwelling with God. That gets broken. Fast forward, Christ comes. Now, what do we have to look forward to? Living in paradise, dwelling with God forever. The relationship being restored. God's kingdom restored. Our shame taken away. Our relationship with God redeemed. That, that's a hope. A good hope we can cling to. Have you received Christ? Do you believe in his name? Through Christ we have obtained an inheritance of being sons and daughters. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that seal is the guarantee of our inheritance until we one day fully acquire possession of it, Paul says in Ephesians. Our adoption as sons and daughters is core to our identity in Christ. Identity is very important to us here. It's one of our core values. Because each day we need to remind ourselves, as the world, as culture is telling us, you're not good enough. God's ways are, are, are stupid. You're a failure. How can he love you? We remind ourselves, no, I'm a child of God. I am loved. I am adopted as his child. I don't need to listen to those voices. Do we remind ourselves that we're supremely cared for. We can have peace because of that. We can have joy because of that. We can have excitement because of that adoption to the family of God. So I think the scriptures make it pretty clear that when we ask, did God really say we're all his children? He didn't say that. But for those who trust and believe and receive Christ, they have the right to be called children of God. Everybody on the earth has dignity, value, worth, and significance made in the image of God. That's something that distinguishes everyone from the rest of creation. But what distinguishes the children of God from the rest of humanity is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And trusting and believing in Christ, accepting that gift of salvation shouldn't fuel superiority, but gospel proclamation. We should boast of our adoption, not as a point of pride, but as a point of hope that we can extend to other people. We should share about where we once were and how Christ changed us. 
How Christ has taken us from the outside as enemies of God and brought us into the family of God. No longer slaves, but fellow sons and daughters. The heart of God isn't to just sit back and just watch everyone get punished and endure wrath, but he wants to see people come to repentance, to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. We're not doing anyone any eternal favors by saying, you believe what's right for you, I'll believe what's right for me, and we'll see each other in eternity because we're all God's children. It's not the gospel. There's one way to the Father, one way to the family of God, and that's through the Son. Are you running your own way this morning? Or will you receive the free gift of grace that is yours through Christ Jesus? We, can, we can't make it on our own. Will you believe in the Son who gave himself freely so you could be a part of the family of God? Let's join together in prayer this morning. Father, we, we thank you for the grace that you've extended to us. We remember that we were running from you. And that while we were running, you loved us so much that you sent Christ to die for us. To snatch us out of that sin. To bring us to you. Oh, we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts this morning. You would bring conviction of who your son is. That we would receive him with open arms. Believe in who he is. That we would worship you as God, as provider, as master, as savior. That we would embrace our identity as children of God. You called us out of death, brought us into life, and we are grateful for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.